Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. The Grief Trilogy is, as the name suggests, th- uh, a, a trilogy of works, three Australian plays, two of which I've seen, one of which is having its premiere as part of the trilogy, being presented at the La Mama Courthouse from the 1st to the 19th of March. As always, brief disclaimer, when anything about La Mama is raised, I am the chair of the Volunteer Committee of Management at La Mama. That's a conflict of interest, yes, but I'm not benefiting financially from promoting La Mama's work. With that out of the way, I'm joined in the studio by Liv Satchel, who is the writer and director of uh, I Sat and Waited But You Were Gone Too Long, My Sister Feather and Let Bleeding Girls Lie, together with actor Emily Tomlins. Welcome, both of you, to hi, Triple Richard. R. Oh, hi, Richie. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Absolute pleasure. Liv... <laughs> um, it's rare in independent theatre mm. for work to be remounted, let alone uh, a body of work to yeah. be restaged. What's also interesting about this trilogy is that, yes, two of the works are being restaged, but one of them is having its world premiere, which is actually the first play in the trilogy. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is slightly back to front. Um, <laughs> So we've found ourselves in this very unique and surreal situation where we're having the opportunity to, um, I guess, present a group of plays together that have been developed individually and actually consider what it means to produce a cohesive body of work. Uh, The reason that we haven't uh, presented the first one yet was because it was actually my grad show. Uh, So I'm from Sydney originally and I moved down to Melbourne to go to VCA in 2015 and I was actually doing a Masters of Directing at the time. And my directing teacher, Draf, kind of pulled me aside very early on in the course and was like, listen, you need to accept the fact that you're a writer and I think you should seriously consider writing your graduation project. Uh, and that turned out to be, I sat and waited, but you were gone too long. Uh, this, was, this was the first play I'd ever written. It was very... Um, it was very nascent in terms of, I guess, the practice that I have developed since then. But it was really kind of me trying out working in a way that I was interested in um, and hoped was uh, a way forward in terms of the values that I uh, wanted to uh, pursue in a rehearsal room as well as the type of work that I wanted to make. Um in 2015, I had seen M perform uh, at a show at Theatre Works and uh, just thought she was, you know, incredible, blew my socks off. And so I wrote, I sat and waited for M, just kind of hoping for the best, um, <laughs> not knowing her at all. Uh, and so I sent her this very timid email, kind of quite formally introducing myself and uh, asking, not wanting to freak her out, I was like, I've written um, a version of my grad show. Would you be interested in coming to my house to read it with me? Not telling her that it was for her, obviously. Didn't want to come on too strong. <laughs> um, and M, you know, something that I didn't realise is that M is probably the most generous person that you'll ever meet. So she immediately said yes. And that was kind of the point of no return, I think. So we did uh, three nights uh, in October as part of La Mama Explorations, which is a creative development kind of testing platform that La Mama runs, which is just an amazing opportunity for emerging artists. And from kind of once that season was finished, I started to think about um, three plays that are thematically linked, exploring uh, strangers encountering each other in public spaces who are experiencing uh, kind of different uh, levels of grief and loss and how... Uh, that mutual recognition between them might uh, provide opportunities for transformation and change. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, it's a big one. <laughs> and yeah. Emily, I want to bring you in at this point. Not only do you get a letter out of the blue from a complete stranger <laughs> saying, hi, will you come and do a reading of this play with me? Ah. But you later find out it's been written for you. Mm. It must be both flattering and slightly odd. I mean, it's kind of like a form of, of artistic blind dating, but which mm. has clearly yeah, a great sparked great chemistry because uh, yeah. you've since stayed friends, stayed collaborators. 
Well, it sparked a, a lifelong love, actually, Richard. Because, I mean, yeah, I get, Liv and I often talk about this kind of like sliding doors moment. Like, mm. what if it went to my junk mail? Or <laughs> what if I wasn't available? Or what if I was just not very nice and said no? <laughs> um, but it, I mean, it. I think, you know, what... By the time I found out that it was written for me, it, it kind of it wasn't weird, you know. It was it was such a beautiful piece, and it was exploring stuff I I couldn't I hadn't had the opportunity to explore in such a delicate manner before. Um, Liv has this ability to write beautiful words and beautiful silences in her work, um, and creates work that you can kind of really immerse yourself in um and as an actor that's a huge gift so you know for me it was like it three nights was not enough um and you know and our kind of we we very I mean we very quickly realized Mm. that we were on the same page about a whole bunch of things not only the work that we were making but as Liv said the kind of rooms that we want to be in and the kind of the 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 safety that we want to see in our theater spaces um and so it was like what do we do what can we do next what can we do next so I feel like you know our our relationship from that first yes Mm. from me it's it's been based on a series of yeses Mm. that have just made things better and better for the both of us so slowly mushroomed yeah (laughs) in terms of the tone of all three works Mm. the, the 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 kind of emotional through line as you said Liv it's about grief mm. and exploring that in a in quite a quiet way as a po- yeah. and uh, having seen uh, let bleeding girls lie mm. which is uh, a two-hander mm. um uh, uh sorry my sister feather is the two-hander yeah, yeah. and uh let bleeding girls lie is, is a three-hander mm. one is two uh, estr- kind of estranged family members yeah, coming yeah, together. Yeah. The next is three strangers mm. coming together and, and exploring grief. Mm. And I ha- obviously I've not seen the first Mm-mm. one, but why explore grief across an extended series of plays? Yeah, this is a really good question that uh, I guess over the seven years that we've been making these works uh, has kept coming up for me and I haven't had a super clear answer. Um it felt the tone of the works felt very important and kind of because we were working on them individually, it was feeling like a natural progression kind of as uh, each new idea emerged from the last. But actually the opportunity to revisit those works and consider them, what they mean together and what uh, what that conversation is, uh, it was actually only um, as we started heading towards this current season that I realised what was driving um, this undertaking, I guess, and this uh, thematic, I wouldn't say obsession, but, you know, deep interest. Uh, and it was actually realising, uh, I guess, just how connected it is to um, my grandmother's life. So one of my grandmothers, I never met her. Um, she died a couple of months before I was born, but when she was a teenager, she had to flee Vienna. She was Czech Viennese uh, Jewish refugee, and she... Uh, made her way alone from Vienna to England. We have no idea how that happened uh, or how she survived or escaped. She never spoke about what happened to her and that silence had a pretty devastating effect upon my dad's family. Uh, And so what I've realised kind of coming back to these plays is that they're actually all conversations between strangers who, because of their anonymity, you know, because of that, and I'm sure we've all had this experience of, encountering a stranger in public space and because you know that you'll never see each other again, you actually allow yourself to give something to them that you might not give to people that you know and Mm. know that you're seeing again. And so I realised that these conversations are uh, giving the opportunity for these characters to speak to the thing that has most deeply affected them, to speak to their greatest loss or their, um, you know, those emotions that we kind of have to put away in order to you know, get through day-to-day living. And that actually there's something I'm obsessed with public space. Like I'm obsessed with those kind of liminal encounters on public transport and, and all those places that you can't stay in, that you can't kind of um, relax in, in the way that you would, you would in your own home. But there's this 
you know, the number of times I've myself have experienced or have witnessed these encounters of like real strangeness and possibility because of the quality of the space itself. So these three plays, actually what unites them is that it is three looking at three different contexts that allow strangers to unburden themselves and through uh, sharing the thing that kind of their the thing that I they have passed through, uh, it's not a fix, like no one gets better on the other side, mm. but it is actually a moment of recognition and that, oh, I'm actually not alone whilst I'm passing through this huge feeling. Mm. I think I think grief is a is kind of an interesting subject or even word because some people go, oh God, the grief trilogy. Yeah. That sounds I hate that. devastating. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm I, I, up for that right yeah. now. I don't think I can do that in a in a you know a theatre with other people. Um, but I think the thing about the way that Liv explores or the way that we're all exploring grief in these shows is that it it is so multifaceted, mm. you know, and there are, like, incredible moments of, like, levity yeah. and joy and mm. humour and weirdness and and honesty mm. um, that, that come out of grief that, that actually are transformational, yeah. are cathartic, and these plays explore those in a really deep way. And so there's actually lots to kind of get out of it that isn't just kind of deep sadness the word grief actually encompasses all of these things and I think it really is trying to like destigmatize emotion totally that sort of you know we have these connotations with grief of you know huge feeling and um it being we you know we have so many social codes around how long you should feel a particular feeling or Mm. um experience a particular state but actually I think what we're trying to do with these works is show that it is complicated and that there is this huge spectrum that uh, exists with this particular feeling and that uh, it's all okay. And we all go through it. Yeah, and I think especially after the last couple of years, you know, Mm. it's really important to acknowledge that we have all lost a version of our life that we thought we were going to have and that that's okay too and that actually by allowing ourselves to... Uh, take a moment to recognise that and uh, start to process it, it actually opens up a lot in terms of, okay, so that's not what happened. What what else is there? Like what mm. what uh, what other potential is there in my life or in the way that I can exist in social spaces? Um, and I at least I, I feel like that is more possible if you let yourself recognise the loss that has happened. I think the th- one of the things that for me as an audience member has also been fascinating about certainly seeing My Sister Feather and Let Bleeding mm. Girls Lie, uh, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing I Sat and Waited But You Were Gone Too Long, the, the first part mm. of the Grief Trilogy, is when I think about theatrical depictions of grief, mm. what I'm often thinking about is the first raw moment yes. of grief. The yes. big emotion, yes. the yeah. crying and the screaming. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the months afterwards. Yeah. It's, uh, so there's a real, and it must be fascinating kind of, uh, from an actor's point of view, there is such subtlety and nuance and yeah. softness mm. to the gr- some of the grief that is explored and depicted in yeah. these works. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the beauty of, of these works. And it's, as I said, it's such a gift as an actor to be able to kind of explore those nuances because a lot of a lot of the time people do just require you to scream and cry and then get off. Um, and so it's – and, it, I mean, this is the thing, you know, it, it grief takes on so many different forms and, and shapes and it doesn't ever go away, mm. you know. It, it changes, changes shape, you know. I mean, I don't even necessarily think it changes size, mm, but mm. it just – it manifests in different ways. Um, so I think it's, it's just so lovely to actually be able to observe, you know, people – dealing with it in different ways mm. and dealing with it in public space because then it means that, yeah, you you have this particular kind of public persona that you're trying to kind of cope with as well. I mean, most of us carry th- our grief through the world. We keep mm. moving forward, but it's it's there always with us and, you know, coming out in little ways or maybe big ways um, and maybe somebody somebody that we've never met you know, touches like mm, a, a part of it yeah. and, and can recognise mm. it and can see 
something familiar in you that that they have in themselves so I think yeah I mean I think there's so much to explore in there and I think it it you know those two shows um the the responses that we had from audiences the Mm. last time we did both of them was really quite profound because you know people because when you are kind of coming at it gently to people just like kind of relax and then all of a sudden let Mm, it in mm. and it does locate Mm. things in them you know sometimes I think when when things are really uh loud and in your face there's an easier way to kind of shut off Mm, as an audience mm. member but I I feel like the beauty of of Liv's writing is that it it kind of allows you in and allows you to to laugh mm. and feel familiar uh, f- familiarity with mm. these uh characters and then you know and then you might just find a little moment where you're like whoa yeah oh i see that and i think what we're hoping to offer is that it's it is really the that togetherness yeah um that is not a solution per se, but is the thing that eases the the process of working through whatever anyone might be working through. You know, it's that actually um, it's important that these conversations happen in places like theatres because theatre mm. is a civic space. You know, it's that actually allowing uh, communities of strangers to sit together and reflect on, on the potential of togetherness and what mm. togetherness might do for you in terms of being able to experience emotion that might feel too big for one small body yeah and you know i i guess it's that when you get past that acute phase it's actually recognizing that there is a great privilege to feeling grief because it means that you've actually you know felt great love and or belonging or you know any of these things that you know must at some point lead to loss um and so I think what I'm hoping that is that by presenting these works together across three weeks is that it'll give audiences the opportunity to consider grief in its different forms, mm. but also uh, different kinds of togetherness, like different ways mm. of sitting together and reflecting and processing as a shared act. Mm. And that uh, there's actually there's no splitting apart that it's, you know, we're, we'll all remain whole mm. and hopefully come away with an, a new or I guess like um, developed understanding of what community actually means in this context. I do have to ask Liv, there's a weird little story about a particular form of lolly involved <laughs> in this show <laughs> yes. that you had a a, a global challenge. Yes, yes. So, um, <laughs> so the middle play, my sister Feather, uh, for oh look, you know, uh, uh, reasons that are no longer quite clear to me, but it became very important, important very early on that in this play, uh, it's set between two estranged sisters who haven't seen each other for twenty years, uh, and the play. Um, exists in two spaces so exists when they're seeing each other again for the first time in a prison visiting center and it also exists in their shared childhood as girls and it very quickly becomes clear that they have they had next to nothing when they were growing up but redskins the suite now called red rippers were this massive treat for them and were kind of this linchpin of their relationship and so uh, the older sister who's visiting the younger sister in prison brings a big bag of red rippers as kind of a peace offering uh, that was fine when we did the first season in 2018. And then you fast forward to now and for, uh, just like totally inexplicable reasons, <laughs> uh, red rippers have been taken off the market for only the first six months just of this year. <laughs> uh, so, and it's because apparently it's because Alan's is moving their red, red rippers factory. And so it is genuinely impossible to find red rippers in Australia. Uh, a lot of people tried. A lot of there a lot was, of there was got like on the a case. really there was a big community undertaking to try and source <laughs> red rippers for us. Uh, and what actually ended up happening was uh, our incredible producer Julian Dibley Hall finally managed to track down a shipment of red rippers at an Australian food store operating out of Belgium. They only shipped to the EU, so he shipped these packets of red rippers to his best friend who lives in Dublin, Dylan, Dylan. Thank you, Dylan, (laughs) who then shipped them to us. So it, they arrived on Saturday, uh, 
kind of 10 days out from the show opening. So in the nick of time. And I um, obviously, you know, it was quite stressful when we realized this, but I think the amazing thing that's come out of it is that it is now a truly international production. Yes, yeah. Em, <laughs> um, have you ever acted in a, a play before where kind of so much depended on the availability <laughs> oh of a particular Honestly. kind of confectionery? Never. I don't think so. No, I mean, this is the other thing. I feel a bit like Brad Pitt in Liv's shows because she just makes me eat, eat things all, all the, the time. time. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, that's the secret to his acting success. <laughs> if you, if you, honestly, if you've never noticed before, he eats in pretty much yeah, every one of time. his scenes. Um, but, yeah, no, no, but it has been, we kind of, it's been, amazing how you, you kind of get so attached to something. You're yeah. like, I can't possibly eat minties yeah, in this yeah. scene. It has and I remember people just... were like, maybe use a different sweet. I was like, oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm congratulations on the international effort to make sure <laughs> that red so rippers are available for the remount of my sister feather <laughs> as part of the grief trilogy uh, at La Mama Courthouse. I love the fact that we've gone from talking about grief to laughing our heads off. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, really, that's well, the shows in a nutshell. Absolutely. Yeah. That is all a part of it. So three plays, The Grief Trilogy, I Sat and Waited But You Were Gone, My Sister Feather and Let Bleeding Girls Lie at La Mama Courthouse in Carlton from the 1st until the 9th. 19th of March, uh, the courthouse located at 349 Drummond Street, Carlton. You can book by going to lamama.com.au or by calling 9347-6948. I recommend booking for all three plays and uh, having, I think, what will be a remarkable theatrical experience. Emily Tomlins and Liv Satchel, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks, Thanks so much, Richard. Triple R. Now I am joined in the studio by playwright and screenwriter <laughs> Patricia Cornelius uh, and theatre director turned film director Susie D. Susie has co-directed a film adaptation of Patricia's play Shit. Welcome to you both. Lovely to have Hi. you in the studio. Hi, Richard. Patricia, let's start with you. Why and how did your play Shit become a film? I'd love to say that... it that I spearheaded it, but in fact, actually, it was um, Trudy, who's the co-director, um, who'd come to see the play and immediately saw it as the, with the potential for film and then talking with Susie about how we could just um, still maintain um, the theatrical nature of it without, without it, you know, because apparently that's a big no-no. People find anything that sort of still reeks of, of its origins in a theatre sense, theatrical sense, that left in the film get irritated. I don't, actually, but that's my bias. Mm. But So it was just a kind of, um, you know, kind of almost whimsical beginning. Somebody thought they could see it. We thought, wouldn't that be great? The women were uh, in it and doing the play know, knew it and knew it so, so well. So they were really... Um, ready to go, and you were too, weren't you, Susie? Yeah, but it was a, a big challenge going, OK, how do you? Yeah. To honour the words, we didn't want to change the text that much. The text is fabulous, the words, Patricia's words, the play itself. But how do you how do you put this, you know, um, you know, make it into a film and honouring the theatre? So I think it was great. We had great, good, hearty chats about the vision. We wanted to have a really strong, bold vision and, you know, honour the theatre, theatrical world, but put it in an abstract, in an abstract space as well. So, but it was, it was terrific. So Patricia really didn't, you didn't take too long to actually adapt the, um, the play itself to a film, did you? No. I think also there was a decision to not uh, do the long trek, you know, you, where you apply for money for me to make the adaption. That's about three years or more worth. And and I, and I have done that before with other work and it is such a hard slog to get get, get a, a work from beginning to end and, or to, already. So we just thought, I'll oh, bugger it. We'll just absolutely go for it. And I knew there were some in the language that needed tinkering with and knew that it had to be contextualised in a slightly different way and that there were other other spaces, to, whereas, you know, in the theatre they're in one space and 
that we, we so we could explore other spaces outside um, the, the kind of more metaphorical abstract one. And having, now I've watched some of the film uh, to get a sense of it, but watching a film on your, your laptop is not the right way to watch a film with a rich sound design and, and that, that looks strong. But I watched enough, I think, to get a sense of how it was moving through time from kind of the, the, the current day situation where our three women are uh, locked up Kind of, mm. there are security cameras that they have done something, and then kind of the uh, the other elements of the film where because I remember in an early conversation I think with you, Patricia, you described the three female characters in the play shit as the kind of uh, young women you wouldn't want to sit next to on a train. And, of course, there's an early scene where we see the three of them on a train swinging from the hand straps and whooping and, and people moving away from them. And very clearly, yeah, no-one yeah. wants to sit next, next to, to them. them. So, Susie, talk to us about making sure that you could be true to the, the theatrical nature of the play, which you directed, um, but also to expand it out to make sure that you were bringing in more of an external world. Because, yep. again, as uh, Patricia said, a film that is too stagey sometimes does not work as a film. Absolutely. So I think we made an earlier decision to... Because is, there is the present time, as you said, they're in a holding cell and something has happened. They've committed some sort of crime. Um, but it was we had the luxury to go imagine the crime. We imagined the backstory through visual images... So that was the beauty because when, you know, with film you can go to different locations. And, and we really wanted to capture the backstory um, not just through images but actually through a, a particular style, a particular palette, a particular, through a, dif- a particular lens. So I found that really um, fantastic and that really, I think, expanded the whole work, didn't it, Patricia, yeah, yeah. Of, 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 of having that imaginative visual world that we could... Um, place the actors in, and not so much text-driven. I mean, there's there's the text still. Majority the majority of the text is in the holding cell, but you know the or the probably about a quarter of the film is through images and different locations, and you know with, with a great soundtrack to sort of retell this story. Yeah, yeah. The sound design is beautiful. Uh, like literally, as I was as the film began to play, I'm seeing names come up on the screen. I'm seeing. Uh, I don't know, um, chain link fences and laneways and, and kind of urban decay. And I, was, I just thought, mm, that's a nice sound design. Then the sound, design, sound designer's name pops up and then the composer's name pops up. And I'm just going to go, great, thank you. You've acknowledged them and their work and we can hear and feel their work so quickly. What was it like working with a team of people, Patricia, to, to make this film happen as opposed to being a playwright and writing in isolation? To tell the truth, I, I found myself a bit of a like a clumsy oath because the, 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 you kind of play a different role than in the theatre context. You sort of have a in a um, lot more respect <laughs> in the theatre in a way. And whereas once you once you produce the text for a film, you you kind of you're done. Whereas in this particular. Um, process we were um incredibly collaborative and i had lots of um uh, uh, you know i was free to to feed in anything i wanted but in some ways i, I had to step back and watch and so and really by then because of the money and the time that people need you need them to use the time so tightly and so well you, there's kind of hardly anything you can do to save yourself, if you know what I mean. You, kind of, you need to have done the work pretty tightly before the, the, the process begins. But So I was just probably just often actually sort of sometimes even in the shot. Yeah, well, she wanted to be in the shot, of course. <laughs> yeah. No. But I have, to, I have to contradict you a little because mm. I feel like, yeah, of course, in the shooting of it, you, you, know, you wrote the script, the screenplay. We had a very short rehearsal. I think we had one day. Because um, the actors, we had just come back from Venice and Edinburgh. We were all on a high. The characters, were they were lived in and they were ready to go. I mean, two of the actors really hadn't done film before, so we just had to sort of 
sort of nuance their performances, pull the performances back a little bit for film, but still trying to maintain the passion and the energy. But I, but after it's all shot, you go, oh my god, we're finished. We got all, we got, we uh, we had to you know, find money. We or smell of an oily rag. Everyone did it for love. It was a big love job. And the last day of shooting was when um, the lockdown happened. So it was brilliant timing. But then, because of through COVID, Patricia and myself and the editor, Mary Blazeski and Trudy Heller, the co-director, had a lot of time to focus on the editing. So it really, you had a lot of say in, in, in terms of pictures and images because you make this film but, and you write the screenplay, but really what you've got when you look at the celluloid, there's... A myriad of choices, myriad of choices. So you did contribute a lot in terms of each frame, yeah, sure, and that that yep. the post production of it, don't you reckon? Yeah, and uh, I mean the most amazing thing is, and not surprising to most people really, but when, when they're involved, is that how something that you envisaged can change in in the editing process, and how the the very the very beginning that you were so sure of and have been sure of in hundreds of performances of the play does, does not work and has to be reconsidered and and refound. And we we did lots of experimenting with with scenes and changing um, just cha- changing the order was profound um, and um, illuminating. Yeah, and we had the luxury of time. You know, we'd on Zoom a lot of the time, but then we'd sneak into a little studio in, in Mary's studio. But, um, yeah, so we did have that luxury, but it was it was incredible to be able to shift scenes around and the tone, even even the um, narrative slightly shifts with, 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 with when you change structure. It was a, a pretty amazing process, I have to say. I loved it. And a very different process to directing a play. <laughs> totally, totally. I mean, you direct the play and there it is. And and that's it. Sure, you can go back and you can tweak. I just directed a play recently and I went to the last night, the other night, and I was like, I just want to get back in the rehearsal room. I want to change that little <laughs> beginning. But no, it's too late. Um, yeah, very different, but a very, very... Challenging and really fruitful. I, I really loved it, the learning curve that I experienced, that's for sure. How much uh, did you both learn from the making of shit in terms of uh, learning a bit more about the language of cinema? Because you watch films. Uh, every Lots of people watch films and you watch them for pleasure, for example. But did making shit make you think differently about the language of films and do you now watch films or, and even television perhaps slightly differently as a result? I think there's a language thing for me. I I learned I learned something huge, and that that is, I I use a kind of language in a, in a theatrical landscape, whether people are aware of it or not, a, a kind of grungy poeticism. Sometimes the poeticism is so blunt and clumsy, and I love it even more. Um, in, that when it's like that. So, but in film. That doesn't necessarily translate. It, it kind of feels the artifice of it feels too um, broad, and so I think. At the, but at the same time, I don't want to lose the intensity of of how uh, I use language. And sort of when anything fits, sits into naturalism in the theatre, I want to slip my wrists, and then, then see. The, the same thing can happen in film that becomes so dry and without animation. So as long as the language is playful and tough, then I think it can work for both forms. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think you have to be really careful about the language that you're, mm-hmm. that you're employing. So it's interesting. I, I watch, yeah, totally, I watch films very differently now. Even watching a film last night, I do. I look at the colour palette. I look at, I, I really, my ears are really alert for different sounds and the, the intricacies of a sound design. I look at frames. I look at characters. I look at makeup. I look. At, <laughs> I, it is. It's sort of for a while there. I was. It was awful because it was. It was too analytical. I wasn't really listening to a story or a narrative, enjoying the whole. I'm sort of changing now, but I still, yeah, definitely look look at films through a different lens now. Much more as a, you know, if I'm going to direct another film, what would I do? And oh my God, how did they create that little moment there? So. It's, it's, 
pretty, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And now you'll get to watch uh, Shit, uh, your own film, in a different way again with an audience uh, because it's screening uh, this weekend, Saturday the 25th of February, 7pm at ACME as part of the, Mel- uh, the, yeah, the Melbourne Women in Film Festival, MWFF. You've probably seen it with an audience already, but will this be different because it's a, a broader audience, more general public rather than just a, a select few? They're paying. <laughs> That's the big difference. <laughs> We've only had one showing of the film and it really was for people who um, our supporters and for cast and crew and for people who donated to the film. So we've only ever had that one showing and where it was a free event. And it was a great... We had got a great response. It was a great night. Um, but this time... Um, yeah, it'd be very different with... It's in the same theatre, actually. It's in the big cinema at Acme. Um, but, yeah, looking forward to the response on Saturday night. <laughs> it's, it's sort of exhilarating rather than terrifying. It's a, I feel like we've, we've waited for quite some time for this to happen and, and now it is just really exciting. So you can catch shit... Uh, which I definitely recommend, having watched some of the film to get a taste of it, because uh, I want to have that full theatrical experience, the cinematic experience. I've also seen it twice, possibly even three times as a stage play, oh. so definitely <laughs> recommend it uh, in that form as well. But Shit, written by Patricia Cornelius, co-directed by Susie D, screening as part of... Uh, as I said, the Melbourne Women in Film Festival this Saturday at 7pm at ACME. Uh, for f- more info, go to acme.net.au. Go to the What's On tab and you'll find all the information you need to book tickets for shit. And uh, <laughs> I hope it goes down a treat. And Susie and Patricia, thank you both for joining us. Uh, thanks, thanks Richard. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now it's time for us to talk about dance, both contemporary dance and community dance and everything in between. Frame is a new biennial of dance for Melbourne. Uh, A couple of months ago, we talked about some of the program and some of the ideas when the the conversation went public. The full program is out now, with Frame running from the 1st to the 31st of March. We're going to talk about it with Emily Sexton, who is the co-artistic director of Arts House. And also we're joined by Jonathan Holmesy, who is one of the members of the Curatorium, who have helped shape Frame. So welcome and thank you, both of you, for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Good morning, Richard. So nice to be with you again. And let's start with you. Uh, there's so many different partners involved with Frame that it must be almost difficult to to think about, let alone talk about. <laughs> but how? What Frame is a really interesting title to give this biennial because this is about putting a frame around the entirety of dance practice, or at least trying to. Yeah, that's true, and I think it's about um, an offer, maybe perhaps like offering a window into what is an ongoing and bubbling and expansive community and practice, and this is just one frame and there will be another one and there will be different ways of looking at it all the time. So I think what we're offering is um, uh, a window into what is an incredible community in Melbourne, and one of the um, great privileges of being inside that those 22 organisations who come together to make this festival, is um, it's been a, a very powerful sector recovery process. You know, we've got everybody from the Australian Ballet to Temperance Hall to the Centre for Projection Art to Punctum, you know, these very big institutions and these really, really micro ones. And they are coming together for a common purpose every two weeks or every one week. And we're all together to make a dance festival for Melbourne. And I think that common goal is a very powerful exercise. I also think we do need to take seriously uh, what the role is of a public cultural institution and how it's relevant to the community. I think we can kind of imagine a lot of examples um, of the past, which is, you know, a singular male white artistic director as the gatekeeper and tastemaker for culture. And it's not going to work for us anymore. And it's certainly not working um, after COVID and, and, and all those kind of reckonings around who gets to lead and who is part of the conversation. 
So this model, and it is a, you know this kind of questioning about how art ecosystems work is a global conversation and I'm proud that Frame is very much in the cutting edge of that conversation where the all the different institutions are working together and that is the sustainability of the sector. The strength is shared. Um, we do have, you know, someone like Johnny who operates within as an experienced arts manager, as an artist, as a sort of interlocutor and kind of um, a sort of cultural leader within a, a street dance community. We have that voice right in the middle alongside other voices um, determining what the festival is and, and who it's for. And to me that's um, it's a very inspiring way to work and it's a and, a and and I also think the point is when you involve lots of people from the beginning in what the pro in what the festival or the project is going to be they come <laughs> at the end because it's relevant to them because they've been part of the journey. So that's the kind of the work that we've been thinking about at Arts House across a number of things and um, it's been exciting and very rewarding and a little bit chaotic um, to do it in dialogue with, with people to make this festival. Let's talk about that dialogue a little bit and how it has shaped the resulting program, Jonathan. The idea of a curatorium is fascinating to me because, again, it, uh, as M says, it's, it's not an artistic director or it's not just co-curators. It's a, a much broader and deeper and, and uh, informed contribution to the festival. How has the curatorium shaped the program? I think for me the curatorium has been really refreshing there's 15 of us, and when I first heard there was a 15-person curatorium, I had an audible gasp. Um, and as we've been working through those curatorium meetings, what's been interesting is it's been a bit clumsy um, because I don't think dance has been equitable in this country for a long time, and we're really trying to make an effort to make this festival be equitable from the inception of it. And so in that, it's a bit clumsy. Like Emily's saying, there's we're trying to negotiate new models, and so in that, there's a little bit of... I don't want to say spicy, but spicy is the first word that's come to mind. Spicy conversations in that curatorial room, but we are creating a safe container. And I haven't felt a culturally safe container in a while. And so thank you for all the partners for creating that. Um, and we went through an EOI process to have all those applications and probably the most complex panel <laughs> I have ever been to for that day to help select artists. But we basically are in a constant two-way conversation between the institution and the independent artists. And that door is always open. Usually with the curatorium, you do the one thing, we have the transaction, and then our hands are lifted. But that conversation is open, and we're still continuing to do it right now. The curatorium is also working on a wellness project with the Arts Wellbeing Collective, trying to see how we can shape wellness into the festival. So we're trying to see equity both on and off the dance floor for the artists and the arts workers, and especially for our production teams. As you know, during the great resignation, there's been a real shortage of production people, and we really want to support the production teams at all of our venues. That will be happening behind the scenes. Will it shape what the public see as well in programs at venues like Arts House, Dance House? Uh, I think, like in terms of the wellness program, Johnny's describing yes, because you'll you'll you know there's there's cute posters, there's kind of offers out into the community. Because I think uh, anybody who maybe you're a performer, but maybe you're a, a dance lover, and and you know certainly um that i guess frames predecessor dance massive created a huge audience for contemporary dance um and that's something to be incredibly proud of so we feel confident going into a new festival like this that we are building upon a real appetite and a real knowledge now of um what contemporary dance can be about or what any dance can be about so i think for all of those people who are interested in the scene um the last 2 years were it is uh, it is like recovering from an injury. It is something that you have to take seriously in your rehabilitation process to prev to prevent further injury. And so I think that um, that kind of offer of like what is this um, space that we're in with together and some of the shows in the festival require us to be very thoughtful, I think, about how we engage with work. Um, you know, I think about a show that's coming up at our venue, Jackie Shepherd's The Honouring, you know, it deals with really, um, it's a beautiful show that engages, you know, has puppetry and movement and it's very deliberate but it also has some pretty serious themes attached to it. So um, it's very necessary that we look after the people that are coming. Um, but I think your question was also about like what is, what has the curatorium kind of cracked open in terms of the programming? Um, 
maybe you're better positioned to talk to I that, I think John. there's just different offerings than just shows. I think in the previous iterations of Dance Massive, we might have one or two workshops, one or two social gatherings, and then heaps of shows. The offerings have changed from workshops, free classes at Chunky Move every single morning, the and month Lucy of March. Garin as well. And yeah. Lucy Guerin um, to parties myself, um, would change from Aterroa, Archipelago, at Dance House on the 25th of March. And then there's also Luke George's Aliens of Extraordinary Ability. That is a mouthful, Richard. Also on the same night. But that one runs till 1 a.m., so you can go to both. Um, there's offerings for us to gather in different ways and dance in different ways. And then I also think that... We're, um, relates to class and how we get into class. Sometimes it's not accessible to afford all those tickets. And I think from Arts House's sliding scale of tickets um, to these free classes, there's different ways that the community and the industry can enter dance. And I find it so refreshing. I the think of it as a really porous program. You know, like it exists, yes, as shows, but it is also like so, there are so many opportunities to be dancing. And I think that's cool. Yeah, and that's something I wanted to pick up on. The the free dance classes, for example, at Lucy Gare and, and Chunky Move. Can anybody do those? Is that can a, a member of the public who might boogie in their lounge room kind of go and find themselves doing a class they with are professional the, dancers? They are um, pre-professional company classes. So I think just check the schedule. And is each class is a bit bespoke. I believe Chunky Move have some beginner classes on Saturdays. And I think Chunky deliberately. Um all of their classes, are pr I'm pretty sure they're named as open. So it's, they really try to make it up to you to determine whether um, you feel confident to participate in, in movement on your terms, I think. Yeah. I think agency. Agency is a really hot mm. term this decade, and we're just trying to embody that agency and letting people make active choices both on and off the dance floor. There is one beginner class I would love to plug, which is with JC Iman, who's right now at Sydney World Pride. She's the mother of House of Iman in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And she'll be teaching a Vogue class on the 27th, sorry, 20th of March from 8 to 9.30. And that's for all levels and all gendered identities for you to strut your stuff. And it's almost sold out. So please check it out if you want to come. The other thing that really struck me about Frame uh, when it was first announced and now that the full program is out is just seeing the breadth of the program. It's not just a handful of venues in the inner city. There is work programmed at Bunjil Place, for example. There is work programmed at Geelong Art Centre. And you mentioned Punctum, who I think are up in Castle, Maine. So this is a festival that is consciously trying to be for all of Melbourne and beyond. Yeah, and I think what's cool is that there isn't just venues involved now as um, as sort of partners to the festival. So Punctum and Centre for Projection Art are producers of, of work and they are equal at the table um, and, and collaborating with a range of venues around the place to, to sort of share artists' works. So um, we also have a very great dance on screen program um there's cool stuff happening um out at the substation in newport um in real real that center for rejection art has put together a beautiful program some of it's happening at collingwood yards at brunswick mechanics institute um yeah so there's a lot but also if you love shows that's fine um you don't have to dance and next week arts house has um a double bill of um two extraordinary south asian artists um uh, probably some of the most interesting experimental South Asian artists we have in the country. Um, and you'll really, on that night, get to see how the practice, how these classical practices are being exploded. So um, that night we have Raghav Handa, who's an absolute delight from Sydney, collaborating um, with a drummer, and they have this beautiful kind of um, back and forth in, in the form. And then we also have Raina Peterson, who, um, I, I mean, what... What else do I need to tell you? It is classical Indian dance meets lasers. Like, <laughs> come and enjoy. And I think what I'm really enjoying, especially about the Arts House program, as a street dancer, I have a real connection to the music. And I think because the way we did dance at Rusden and therefore into the Victorian College of the Arts, there's a real postmodern relationship with dancer music. And I think that's kind of dissolving with this programming. So first, thank you, Em, for programming these people. Oh, I should say. <laughs> oh, yeah, Rain, really. Raina was part of Culture Lab, but actually um, Nitya Nagarajan, pro, pro, my co-artistic director, programmed Frame for us. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> pardon me on that one. But there is a different relationship to dance and music, and it's great to see some wonderful musicians and composers work with us and to make us have a good time in a boogie. Yeah. It's not just, mm. you know, Steve Reich or... John Cage. Yeah. There's, yes. a, there's a different way to engage sonically. So if you're a general punter and a bit nervous about dance or you feel it's a little bit too daggy for you, frame's a little bit different. We're reframing how we're doing dance. See what I did there? <laughs>
we've talked about the importance of equity and safety. How does that... Uh, um, clearly, that must be important when you're working with a company like Restless Dance Theatre. I mean, look, Restless are um, one of... Uh, I would say, you know, if people don't know them, they're um, one of our... They are our leading um, company, in, dance company in Australia that works with people um, inclusive of disabilities. They're led by the extraordinary um, Michelle... Oh, gosh... Michelle Ryan. Ryan, thank you. I kept going with Michelle Heaven. Michelle Ryan, thanks. Um, and they are really underseen in Melbourne, I reckon. I mean, you just haven't um, been had the privilege of looking at Restless's work enough. Um, so, ironically, this show is called Exposed. And I think if you want, if you are interested in understanding the full breadth of what dance is in the country, you must see this show because they are absolutely essential contributor um, to what to what dance is about. And Jonathan, in terms of making sure that other aspects of dance are incorporated into the program, so you've mentioned street dance, for example, uh, the idea of community dance and cultural dance, uh, I, the fact that that is placed side by side in frame alongside contemporary dance companies seems really significant. I would love to pose a question, why isn't all of it contemporary dance? I think contemporary dance means dance of the present, and I think with this model of the curatorium and the partners, we are expanding the definition of contemporary dance. And I, I mean, the point is of that, it kind of goes back to what we were saying at the start, like uh, narrowing definitions and being, you know, uh, having singular determinees of, of, of what an art form is or is not, it, it's just not relevant anymore when, you know, you think about how we engage on social media, how we contribute to culture in an everyday way. If the arts um, uh, sticks with an old idea of the way that news was once released or the way that people um, engaged with media in the, in, you know, 50 years ago, we really, really will, um, you know, uh, um, age out of a conversation. So it's essential that we are porous and inclusive and asking lots of people to get involved in... in um, not just dance, but all parts of what we're doing as cultural makers, I think. Frame, uh, a biennial of dance, is running throughout March from the 1st to the 31st of March at numerous venues with numerous partners involved and numerous activities, as we've heard. So check out the program, framebiennial.com.au. Book some tickets to see some shows, but... Also, put your dancing shoes on and get along to a party or two. Jonathan and Emily, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. I'll see you on the dance floor, Richard. You'll see me dancing very badly. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.